Welcome to another episode of the Criterion Quest, a continuing podcast series looking at important films and contemporary classics. My name is Chris, and I'm joined, as always, by my wonderful co-host, Tom. Hello. And uh, we're back with a monster box set episode. <laughs> monster. Yeah, it's a monster. Uh, six films. Oh, it's, the box set is uh, John Cassavetti's five films, but there's actually six in the box set. And we're going to take a little bit of time today looking at... Three of those, we're going to look at Shadows, Faces, and the documentary A Constant Forge. Uh, yeah, well, we, we took the uh, the advice of one of our listeners to try and go for the documentary first to get a kind of overarching uh, feeling for John Cassavetes before we jump in, and I think that was a good idea. Yeah, that, that was some really good advice. It gave us, like, you know, I'm, I'm familiar with Cassavetes as a bit of an actor, and I'd seen a few of his films as a director, but nowhere near as much as, you know, getting the info that we got from the doc, like the contextualization yeah, you, of it all. You want to be primed, that's for sure. Yeah. But uh, before we get into the films, uh, we got a little bit of business to take care of. Mm-hmm. Uh, because of this box set being spine number 251, that means it's time for a look back. It is indeed. So, out of the last 10, we have some interesting stuff here. So, there is the Stage and Spectacle, three films by Jean Renoir, that entire box set, or the individual films The Golden Coach, French Can-Can, Elena and Her Men, Port of Shadows, Evil Loney, Slacker, Videodrome, Battle of Algiers, or if you felt so bold, you could go for John Cassavetti's five films, the entire box set. Well, we can't make a fair judgment on that yet, so <laughs> that's out. Yeah. Uh, yes, it was an interesting set of ten. There was some absolute gems, and there were some absolute pieces of shit. <laughs> yeah, it, it was a rough beginning of that the 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 cycle, but then it uh yeah came good at the end there. Yeah, I don't want to sell Jean Renoir short because I actually do really like a lot of his work, but I got to admit that the three uh, three films that we watched by him were. <sighs> challenging to watch yeah they were it was a different Renoir than what we'd come to get used to like it was him sort of working doing hey look I can make films in color <laughs> I, I appreciate the fact that you can celebrate through these three films the different aspects of of theater and film mm. um, but they were just kind of so dated uh, that it didn't translate well for me um, in a kind of modern context, I think so. Yeah, no, I think that's a really good way to put it. So I, I'm in total agreement. I don't necessarily want to highlight a single one of them because I can't remember specifically which one I did. I dislike the most. So I'm just kind of, it's one of those. <laughs> <laughs> sure. But let's, let's get on to, uh, the other stuff because it was really actually quite remarkable. Even, um, that my runners up for you know Port of Shadows was was really fantastic. Yeah, uh, I, film noir. Yeah, I, I wanted to kind of give a little shout out to Port of Shadows because honestly, I think in any other block of ten, it might have gotten up there. It's just you know coming after it with three fantastic films. So, mm. <laughs> but um, yeah, both it and Evil Loney. Like Evil Loney, while it's not my favorite Fellini, it's 
it's a really interesting glimpse into his filmmaking process and kind of, you know, an early film for him that kind of became, shows where he's going to go as a filmmaker, which was really good. Mm. But then we had Slacker Videodrome and Battle of Algiers and, uh, you know, Cronenberg, for me, speaks, speaks to, yeah, it's just, he's always amazing. Yeah. And in fact, I think that Videodrome has become my favourite uh, and I'm kind of comfortable saying that it's his best film for me. Yeah, it, it is for me. Um, I, I've always been a massive Videodrome cheerleader and, yeah, watching it again the other week just reaffirmed that for me, that this is my favourite of his films. Yeah. And Slacker as well for, like, for Linklater. Uh, that's definitely my favourite of Linklater's I've seen. Mm-hmm. Uh, just remarkable in terms of just, like, being able to produce something so different uh, back in 1991 and start that start burning those coals of, of independent film that would take on, you know, its own legacy. It's, it's just an amazing experience watching that film. Yeah, and it's a nice kind of segue into some of the stuff we're going to be talking about today as well with Cassavetes. So, yeah. Um, but I think for me, like, I, I love dearly. I mean, God, if you go back and listen to those episodes, it's just me gushing <laughs> all over those films. Um, but I think I, I have to go with Battle of Algiers as my favourite. Um, mm. Or... It, I would say Videodrome is probably my favourite, like, as in I go back and watch that more often, and I've seen it a dozen times, and I love watching it, but I think Battle of Algiers is the best film out of that Yeah, I'm I'm in full agreement that the the fact that it's technically, and uh, in terms of what it did for cinema, is, like, I, I think it'd be hard to say that it wasn't the best film of the lot yeah but, not, ag- but again you know of course Cronenberg's my favourite yeah and plus you know it, you look at its relevance nearly what 50 years on and it's still as powerful and impactful and says the same things now as it did then it's yeah an amazing piece of filmmaking mm-hmm. but Cronenberg has a uh, man getting a hand grenade implanted bloody hand grenade into his hand and blowing up like come on <laughs> that's just the tip of the iceberg yeah <laughs> Uh, but yeah, so that's it. I mean, the, the, there's many of those that uh, are must-sees. So it, it has been a great lot of films to watch. Yeah, and then it's going to be interesting when we roll around to the next um, top ten, like, you know, look back, because it's going to be, like, 70% Cassavetes. I'm okay with that. Yep. So far, so good, you know. <laughs> All right. Well, before, uh, the other little bit of news we've got to take care of before we jump into Shadows and Faces and Constant Forge is uh, our Patreon. Uh, we, we teased it a couple of weeks back, um, saying that we were getting things in motion and getting it all ready. And, uh, yeah, we're going to be launching it uh, the day this episode drops. So on July 1st. So uh, if you want to head over to... I'll, I'll link it all in this episode, you know, in the description. There'll be links to it all. But um, if you head over to the... It's just Patreon slash The Criterion Quest. And uh, we have our first commentary track available. The castle. That was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed it. Mm. And looking forward to doing more. Yes, yes. So we're gonna uh, we're gonna get a few more going. Uh, once a month, we'll be dropping a new commentary track, and uh, we're gonna try and figure out some other little bits and pieces to add up there. So just uh, you know, hope you're enjoying yourselves while you're listening and watching these films and listening to us talk shit. Exactly. Um, well, on that note, do you want to talk shit about some John Cassavetes? <laughs> sure. So let's let's start with the doco because that's what we watch first, and and as I said, it's a good primer. Um, before we actually even jump into that, I, I'm just kind of curious: what was your uh, knowledge of Cassavetes before these? 
Basically Zero. I'd, I'd heard of him. Uh, his name kind of pops up when you're reading about film here and there, whatever. Uh, but I'd never seen any of his films as an actor and I'd never seen any of his films as a director. Oh, you'd seen one. He, oh, he was I? in The Killers, the, the oh. um, 70s version with Ronald Reagan that we watched. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, he was, well, the, maybe, he was the race yeah. car driver guy in that. Okay, well, maybe that's why I'm picking up the name. And have you ever seen Rosemary's Baby? I have not. Oh, okay. uh, please don't berate me. No, no, not at all. No. <laughs> A lot of people have, have asked me that question and they... What, what, what? Yeah, no. Ro- Rosemary's Baby is like the the big one for me is like where I knew Cassavetes from. And um, yeah, then knowing he was a filmmaker, I'd kind of dived in and had, I'd only ever seen uh, Woman Under the Influence and Killing of a Chinese Bookie, which we'll get to next week. But Okay. So this was a really kind of fun box set to just kind of dive in and get an education. Yeah, it truly is a, an education. And... Uh while the documentary is three hours and 20 minutes, yeah, um, it, took me, it took me with, I was looking after my baby Nelly um, that day, and it took me seven hours to get through it. Oof. It's such a long documentary. I don't know if it needs to be that long, but at the same time, it paints a lovely picture and the, the, all the actors, uh, some of them actually familiar because there's like regulars for Wes Anderson and stuff. Yeah, Seymour Castell in there. Yeah. Uh, they... They love him so much. They love working with him. They think he's a fantastic man. And so, even though the, the documentary is so long, uh, it's such a it can you can take it as a kind of a warm hug for for what would be just like a obviously just a lovely gentleman. Yeah, and and a lot of his close family and friends being able to kind of celebrate him and look back on the life that he led and the art that he created. It, it's really mm. wonderful. Um, yeah. So I think like it doesn't particularly meander. I guess I don't know if we need to talk about the technicalities of the documentary itself. Yeah, that it doesn't, doesn't meander a little. Bit. I don't know whether it meanders, but yeah, that that's the interesting thing because it is technically a spine number and it's in the box set. Like we should really discuss a constant forge, but at the end of the day, it is while it's really lovely and insightful, it's kind of plays almost like a A and E like bio TV documentary thing. Like it's not exactly amazing watch <laughs> to watch it, it, it felt like a special feature like a, a, yeah. a complimentary piece to the five films that are the actual you know meat and potatoes of this box set exactly exactly so i mean we probably won't spend much time talking about the film itself more just the actual content and what we yeah. gleamed from it i guess but it's a really good um, i mean it covers off on pretty much everything you want to know mm. um from his acting career to his directing what was what and, i found interesting actually was how much it just i because i went in expecting it to be like a full knowing that it was three and a half hours i, I was expecting like this broad spectrum documentary of like john cassavetes was born in 1927 in a small oak bridge town blah 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 like yeah but instead it's like nope straight to fucking business yeah he was an actor but that doesn't matter we're talking about him as a like it really gets to the nuts and bolts of him as a filmmaker and the the way he ran his productions and what he wanted to achieve and how he essentially reinvented American cinema. Yeah, well, I think by the 13-minute mark, it's covering off on his film A Child Is Waiting from 1962, mm. um, which was a really good place to start, I think. I haven't seen the film, but, uh, you know, it's a, it's a commercial um, project uh, made to make money. And the producers were interested in making money. and That was the one was a- produced by Stanley Kramer, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. 
And I, I kind of fell in love with uh, Cassavetes as soon as that situation was mentioned because he's saying that the producer changed his vision uh, of the film from a retarded child, which is a 1962 term, I'm just quoting, mm-hmm. uh, a retarded child and, and whether they should be incorporated into you know all aspects of society. And the producer thought, well, they should be separated, so we're going to change change this film up a little bit. And Cassavetes is like, well, f- fuck that. I'm going to make this film, but I am never doing a commercial film uh, again. Yeah, like film... He is a big flag waver for film is art. It's not commerce. Yeah, <laughs> like- yeah that's right. And he's, he says you can't please the studios and yourself at the same time if you want to do uh, something that's an artistic expression, mm. um, which I, which I mean, I love. Yes. I love that kind of sentiment. And, and, and he's fully, he, he thinks that film can be entertainment, but at its best and what he is trying to make is something that's challenging, and he, he, he even said that at some points he, he wants people to go away from his film having not been entertained, mm. therefore being challenged. And uh, his films really do do that. I, um, I got the same vibe as uh, Scenes from a Marriage, actually. Yeah, yeah. Oh, uh, Bergman's it, film. Especially with Faces. Yeah, that's right. Well, Bergman's miniseries, really, and film. Yeah. Um, in that it's very specific in how it portrays uh, couples, relationships between people, uh, in that you can kind of use it as a mirror to yourself, and that's why it becomes often challenging. Yeah. Because all of the characters that he writes, they're part good and they're part bad. They're not, they're not like your kind of archetypal hero they're not your villains. They're just somewhere in between, which which is when you boil down that it is everybody. You know, like so you can only see either yourself or somebody you know while you're watching these films. Yeah, and I think that's the the main reason I think that that is how he portrays his characters is having such a rich theatre background and studying acting so deep and so intensely as he did and you know at that level acting is you know you're trying to examine the human psyche and human behavior you're more of a psychologist than you are an entertainer at that point and absolutely it's it's him bringing those elements that you would see in you know like a lot of avant-garde theater and stuff and then bringing that across into cinema and being like we're not like you said we're not gonna have these archetypal heroes and arcs and characters we're just gonna paint as realistic a portrait of humanity as we possibly can, uh, whether yeah. we, whether we achieve that through improvisation or examining the deconstruction of a marriage or you know addiction issues or whatever we do. Well, they're all they're all kind of small emotions, and he and he says that you know the small emotions are more important than money and politics and religion, and that's where you can really take a good look at humanity. Yeah. Just those small, those small moments in between bigger moments. And, and the, like right there, you're saying like, you know, taking a look at humanity, that is what Cassavetes is interested in. He's not interested in telling stories. He's interested in examining human behavior Mm -hmm. and relationships and interactions and things. It, It, he's, it's very clear watching his films that story is secondary to character. If there's no story, it doesn't matter as long as we have a, an interesting character or a character that we are examining alive. Yeah, if through. you're exposing the truth 
uh, about how we operate and behave. Mm. And it can be cryptic. Like a lot of his characters, you don't fully understand them uh, motivation-wise. But yeah. but that's the case with actual humans. Yeah. You don't know what... I think subconsciously everyone operates at some kind of level that you don't really often know what you're doing. You're just kind of acting upon an instinct or um, some kind of deep-seated emotion that you don't fully understand. And I, and I think cleverly his films take their time to unfold. Like mm-hmm. uh, these ones in particular, Shadows and Faces, it takes you a while into the film before you start to realise what he's doing and where we're going and what he's examining. Like, you know, I think Faces, it honestly takes you up until about an hour, hour and a half into the film before you're like, oh, okay, yes, I get what what we're doing here. It's mm. just long protracted scenes of, you know, extreme cinema verite, almost documentary style, like full on cinema verite where it's like, shit's just happening and just watch. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah well, that's interesting because I, I, I mean, I'd heard that term cinema verite before, but I hadn't really gone into it. Um, and I think that his films do have that improvisational nature, mm. although they are highly scripted. Um, every, like, I, it's kind of interesting in that Cinema Verite is in of itself an improvisational use of, of camera you know, in specifically. Mm. Um, but I think his actors and the script, uh, they're all adhering to that script quite strictly. Yeah. Um, but he himself, the, how he moves the, through the scene um, with his camera is is the improvisational element that makes it feel so real. Yeah, it, it, that's and that draws back again to the theatre point where it, it, it feels like he's just has this space for his actors to play and he's like I will with the camera examine this like don't you know obviously because you know you're acting you're in the scene forget that the camera's here but then it, it's there's no structure to what he's doing with the camera he's just mm-hmm. going where he will go and there are points where his characters are walking towards him and he has to get out of the way of them with the camera <laughs> like you know acknowledge and that also breaks down the fourth wall, like letting you, the audience, acknowledge, like, oh, shit, yeah, there's a camera here. <laughs> yeah. We're spying it, on these people, essentially, in their lives. Yeah, you are fully aware that uh, there's characters, but they're also interacting with a person watching. Mm. Um, and Cinema Verite, I think that comes from, from more, you know, documentaries, specifically in the 50s. Yes, but then um, uh, certain filmmakers, like Cassavetes, uh, then brought it into fictional like that that style of filmmaking and you know just letting your camera essentially be almost a participant in the act like you know moving from traditional documentary to that fly on the wall to active participant yeah and that's and it's got its own legacy i mean he he's one of the he, he's one of the men and women that started this movement but mm. oh, we've seen a few of the films that uh, are part of this legacy before we've seen sales salesman yeah from 1969 we've seen great gardens yeah the, from the, 1976 the, ma- the mazels were in like huge into verite in, as a mm-hmm. documentary thing um yeah. even blair witch yes even even saving private ryan i mean the the beach scene in saving private ryan you're fully aware that there is effectively a soldier with the camera is a soldier running around the beach mm. with with all of the participants in that scene yeah and and also yeah it, it just yeah it's those later kind of films like taking private ryan it's interesting to see it and to some extent i think cassavetes does it more so in shadows than faces uh the kind of blending of verite in with a more traditional kind of 
let, letting that style kind of float in and out as necessary to make certain scenes more impactful. Yeah, I think uh, I think a lot of the time, I think his films they they have this kind of flow, this rhythmic flow to them, where I found that you would often have um, moments where characters were in some kind of carnivalesque jubilation where everything's a fever and they're having a good time and they're drinking and they're dancing. And at those times, the camera is moving around um, completely improvisationally. Uh, And then someone will say something and the tone will drop from, you know, some happy thing to something that's very dramatic. And then the camera will just sit and stay still. Yeah. And it would just go from that back into, back into, you know, a fever again and then back into drama and it, it really puts you in the action because like using that as the example like how you know something will happen and it just stops the scene and the, like it's the camera reacts how you as, an, as a person would react in one of those scenes where something intense or striking or you know emotional happens and you just kind of freeze and you're like oh fuck what what, what do we do now what, what's oh god yeah. this is awkward yeah it was like that moment in, in Faces uh, early on where Jeannie is dancing with the um, with the two guys, mm. uh, Richard and I think an, another fellow, and, and they're all having a great time. The camera's kind of going crazy around him and he's really, um, John Cassavetes is really, you know, a part of that celebration and that fun. And then one of the guys says, how much do you charge uh, uh, to Jeannie? Freddie, I want to say. Freddie, I yeah. can't really recall his name. He says, how much do you want to charge? Uh, do you charge uh, being that you're a prostitute? And then all of a sudden the camera just stops and everybody stops. And you're all of a sudden confronted with a really full on dramatic moment that you got to just sit through. Not just that as well, but it like, you know, it, it's brilliantly made, but it also, he uses those kind of moments to reveal plot. Like mm-hmm. up until that point, you weren't, we weren't necessarily aware that Jeannie was a prostitute. We just thought she was a girl. Yeah, yeah. And, and so, Look, that's right. Yeah, he, he's effectively... It is... Sorry. He, he's effectively, like, moulding both, like, experimenting with the camera and how he's actually creating his form with the story that he's telling as well. Hmm. Well, at that point, do we want to just jump into Shadows from 1958? Di- dive headfirst into it. Yeah, yeah. Why don't you do a synopsis? Alrighty, I have the criterion box here. Uh, John Cassavetti's directorial debut revolves around a romance in New York City between Lelia, uh, played by Lelia Goldoni, a light-skinned black woman, and Tony, Anthony Ray, a white man. The relationship is put in jeopardy when Tony meets Lelia's dark-skinned jazz singer brother Hugh, played by Hugh Hurd, and discovers that her racial heritage is not what he thought it was. Shot on location in Manhattan with a mostly non-professional cast and crew, Shadows is a penetrating work that is widely considered the forerunner of American independent film movement. Hmm. Mm. So, uh, this, it's covered uh, in the documentary, but... So, this is born from... Um, John Cassavetes had a, an acting class. Yes. Uh, I think this is what's really remarkable about this film. So, and it's very, you know, uh, improvisational class where everyone just says, okay, you're this person and you're this person, go. You're, this, you're her brother, you're, uh, you're his sister, and uh, go, play. Just w- and, let things uh, unfold. And, and that's how this film came about. So, I think, I mean, if you can picture uh, in, on the theatre space that a white woman 
is partnered up to be a, the sister of a black guy and, you know, skin tone, whatever, doesn't matter. Mm. Just go. Yeah. And then John Cassavetes thinks, well, actually, we could do a film about this because it's quite fucking interesting. Yeah. Because, you know, while we're what we're doing in our theatre space, obviously, skin tone doesn't matter. But unfortunately, in 1958, out in the world, it did. <laughs> Very much so. So let's let's examine those how that affects it on an interpersonal relationship level. Yeah, and, and actually, like to put this into context, Rosa Parks was uh, three years earlier, 1955. Uh-huh. Uh, 1954 was they just declared that uh, schools should be, uh, you know, mixed races. So that's that's only you know fucking four years prior, and it wasn't until 1967 uh, that all the U.S. states allowed interracial marriage. So this is um, this is going to piss a lot of people off. This film, yeah, at that stage. Um, so anyway, I mean, he's using uh, I guess non-professional actors at this stage. A lot of them, especially uh, Lelia, is I don't think she had an acting gig particularly, but she was interested in in learning. Mm. Um, so she could only ever be acting in a sense of let's try and be as natural as possible and use, uh, everyone's using their own names and trying their best to incorporate themselves into the characters. Yeah. Uh, and the research was such that, okay, you guys are going to be characters in the film and I just want you to hang out with each other, become friends, hang out. And that's your research for the film so that when you are on camera, everybody is acting as natural and real as possible. Mm. And not just that, like, he took his time making this film as well. Like, three, four years, uh, reshooting over half of the film as well at one point, um, test screening it, just workshopping it, essentially, and just letting his actors play and understand and live in those characters. And letting... Like, the more comfortable they become in their characters, the more he's able to let the film just kind of evolve and play and they can just kind of construct the narrative that way. Hmm. What is... What shocked me was... I Because I, I knew about it being an improvised film, but once you get into the film, you it's so well constructed and so well acted that you... I don't know about you, but I totally forgot that it was improvised until the end credit comes up and it says this film was... A complete improvisation I was like oh fuck yeah that's genius <laughs> well but, but was it I mean I know that there's that sequence where Lilia is having you know making love to to Tony and uh, at the end of it there she's kind of feeling really shitty yeah it's her first time and she says I had no idea it would be that awful which like okay do we want to talk about that scene quickly and how insanely yeah. powerful that is to Put on film in 1958? <laughs> yes, yes, let's talk about that. Jesus Christ, like, bold filmmaking. Like, A, I think it was one of the first times in American cinema that they showed a couple in bed after having sex, which was yep. never really shown. Um, not to mention you add on to the fact of that that they are technically an interracial couple. Like, even though <laughs> Tony doesn't know that at that point. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> And then, yeah, having such a honest and frank discussion about 
sex and it not being this fairy tale depiction of lovemaking, you know, it's just like, oh yeah. shit, that was not fun. <laughs> it's not, it's certainly not, uh, on any other scene at that stage, mm. any other film at that stage would have treated it as let's try and beautify sex yeah. in such a way that we don't have to really tackle it like, in any proper you know, sense. They, they're going to kiss wonderfully and then kind of fall on the bed while the gossip, the wind blows in and the gossamer curtain kind of waves. I mean, the camera's going to pan away to a candle and then, then we're yeah. going to fade and the candle's going to be burnt down. <laughs> like, and then cut to, yeah, cut to like a, a train running through a tunnel. Yeah. <laughs> just completely make it cheap and shitty. Yeah. Um, no, but, but uh, Lilia mentions in the documentary that, uh, you know, this scene wasn't improvised and it was scripted. She would have never thought to say that because it is so, uh, so real and so intimate. Mm. It, it. So I don't know. Is it is, when the, when it, the film at the end refers to this film is completely improvised? Was that in more of a sense of uh, it's come from an improvisational beginnings, and it's certainly shot in in, in a kind of you know cinema verite style. Yeah. Um, but I. I I thought that the script was very much, you know, everyone's trying to very much stick to that script. I, I, I viewed it as it's an improvised film in the same way that, uh, Curb Your Enthusiasm using that okay. example where it's okay, yeah. like they, they make an episode of Curb by having a five page outline, five to 10 page outline of this scene happens, then this scene happens and this scene happens. And that's what, this is what the motivation and what is going to occur in those scenes but there's no actual dialogue written. And it's just, here's what ha- here's what this scene is. Here's what has to happen by the end of this scene. Go. Just have fun. Play. Okay. Well, that, that's at odds with the fact that, uh, you know, the quote, the line, I had no idea it would be that awful. Yeah. It's completely not improvised. Th- that being said, there, I think there are some moments where it is just like, you need to say this. <laughs> like, uh, yeah, it, it sounds. It seems like John is like you know, actors do what you want. I'm not going to give you much direction at all, but but this, we need if to he has we a need to have this idea, in here because yeah. it is it is real, and I want that. Yeah, this is a powerful statement, and this is like a you know something I want to portray on screen. Say this, <laughs> and that as well happens at another point in Shadows where. Um, there's the guy being aggressive towards her and then Cassavetes actually himself appears in the film uh, and pushes the guy out of the scene. <laughs> it's just like, no, I don't like where this is going and actually comes in and interacts. And yeah, it's, it happens like outside of the movie theater. Okay. Hmm. Um, well, I mean, the, the big thing that we haven't talked about with the film yet is race, really. <laughs> so we, yeah, we should probably like touch on that. Point. The whole point of the film yeah <laughs> yeah cool i mean uh, the, the, the most amazing sequence in the film uh is when tony finds out that lelia is actually you know american descent mm. um and uh, I, it, like the, the the film tends to kind of it, it's almost over the top in the way that it's it it flows um it, it's almost like it's wasting your time sometimes it, Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. like this, it, it lingers on moments that don't mean much, but set a tone um, so frequently that when you do have this moment occur, when Tony does find out about uh, Lelia's descent, it, it, everything just comes like to a complete stop, and it's so jarring, and you are 
you were just kind of woken up out of out of like this kind of hazy voyeuristic dream yeah and that that's uh, seems to be a very common kind of reoccurring thing in a lot of Cassavetti's work but it is yeah it is I, I wouldn't uh, I'd use the term meandering I guess like and it was kind of what I alluded to earlier in the episode where it's like the, the films kind of keep going on and you to an extent where you're like where are we going what's what's all this in what's service of yeah what's yeah. the point and then it's all of a sudden like bang, hits you like a freight truck. And in yeah. this, it is race, which is, um, he tackles in a very interesting way, I think. Like like you said, the fact that, like, Tony himself doesn't even know that Lelia is African-American and, you know, it's it's that... So he, it's like the blurred lines of the characters, he's using that as the examination of, well, these lines should just be blurred anyway in society. Like, well, they shouldn't be... It shouldn't be an mm. issue. Mm. I found Tony's reaction to be, uh, he's, he's not like your, your, again, he's not like the villain where he's like, yeah, I'm a racist. Fuck you. I'm going to bash you up because you're a black guy. Yeah. He's, he's emotionally stunted and doesn't know what to do. And he's awkward and he's, he's part angry. He's part sad and depressed. Um, it's really remarkable, like how subtle, um, these characters really are in that sequence. Yeah. He doesn't do that stereotypical like oh what the fuck like you know explosion or anything he yeah he is just taken aback yeah. and it, it the fact that he is taken aback is what is the issue he's exposed like he's not yeah. too it's like he's not comfortable with himself as well yeah and he's and just been exposed as uh, to be you know to he, he's seen himself as he is and he's he laid quite all like of his cards it. out on the table and he's just there so mm. Mm. Yeah, and then Hugh, um, Lily's brother, he's just so, he's just so strong in that moment. So, you know, like it, it just becomes, I think that's what I really like about these films in particular is that it's, it, f- it really feels like John Cassavetes is trying to convey uh, something that, take a Hollywood film and just pressure wash all of the Hollywood bullshit out of it until you just distill characters on a screen with the filmmaker and just portraying like as truthful as you can without it being an actual real documentary. Yeah. It's what like, it's y- like to have in a relationship with other people and things. Yeah. Pressure washer uh, doing the pressure washer is like, that's the perfect analogy for it. It's like strip it all down. Like, what are we doing? What are we saying? That's what, that's what this is. Mm. And so I, I, and I got to admit that, that in both of these films that I'm sure the next three we're going to watch, they do, uh, they do meander or they linger on these, these seemingly not important moments so long, but it it creates such a powerful um, juxtaposition when you finally do have that dramatic um, shift. Oh, totally. Yeah. That that there's no problems with with, with any of this for me. Yeah, and it, I can definitely see as well. Like if you weren't familiar with Cassavetti's, like the. It's a specific style of filmmaking, and it is jarring. And like we said, like it takes its time, like you know, getting to places. And if you weren't aware of that or accustomed to it, it you could be like, "What the fuck? These movies are slow and boring and dull." But but mm. like you said, it is. It's all in service of this, like you know, this payoff. Well, if I hadn't watched the documentary first, right? And I was just I was thinking about this, and um, faces, for example. Uh, let's talk about that now. Um, 
the moment... Oh, sh- actually, let's do a synopsis before we start talking about it, if you could, please. Well, I've also got trivia on Shadows, if you want to hear of a little course. bit of that. Of course, please. Uh... So the film was nominated for four BAFTAs in 1961, our best film from any source, best, uh, most promising newcomer in a leading role. Uh, the nominations went to both Lelia Goldoni and Anthony Ray. They were both nominated, as well mm. as the UN Award. Uh, it won the Passanetti Award in parallel sections at the 1960 Venice Film Festival, and it was inducted into the National Film Registry in 1993. So... It, it gets it's the fact that it's in the National Film Registry is like rock on like it's getting the acknowledgement it deserves. Um, Cassavetes was a guest at the, on a Manhattan radio show promoting Johnny Staccato, which was a TV series he was acting in at the time. Uh, somehow the conversation moved into making a feature film and Cassavetes told listeners uh, that if he were to make a feature film, they should don't if they wanted him to make a feature film, they should donate a dollar or, or two by sending it to the station. A few days later, he was surprised uh, to find that a couple of a couple of thousand dollars from listeners had been sent into the station, which he put towards the making of the movie. Uh, like GoFundMe sort of situation. Yeah, um, and so on that note, the budget for the film was about only forty grand. So mm. it's, um, it's, it's nothing. I know they filmed. He filmed in his house, or is that faces? Uh. In his house for shadows and faces, I believe, was his mother-in-law's house. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, film critic Leonard Moulton described the film as being a watershed moment in the birth of American independent cinema. Uh, walkouts were quite high during the film's initial run, as many audience members were unused to its improvisational and meandering nature. Yeah. I think he probably would have relished that as well. Yeah. Based off his personality and what he said about... Cinema in general. It's like if you if you're not on board for this, good. I don't you, want you in the audience. You should you shouldn't be comfortable. Yeah. When you watch my shit, is kind of what I'm. I feel like he's going for anyway. Mm. Uh, Cassavetes once said of the film, uh, "We were improvising. Every scene was very simple. Uh, they were predicated on people having problems that were overcome with other problems. At the end of the scene, another problem would come in and overlap and take over control. And it's that is such an interesting way to structure." and design a film. <laughs> well, that's, yeah, that's the improvisational nature, isn't it? Mm. And then there's... I've, I've got some stuff, but it, I kind of can't be bothered with it. It's the, <laughs> the long... It's like the long-rumoured, like, alternate original version of the film. Um, and yeah, yeah. yeah y- you know what I'm... Yeah, it's... Some guy claims that he's found a print of it in Gina Rollins and the Cassavetes family are like, no, it's not. And no, I think he... Cassavetes kind of destroys all of his old stuff you know, yeah it's not the final thing not the final vision full vision let's say mm-hmm. and he just destroys that shit so that, that was my impression so i've got some stuff on that but we'll, ju- we'll just skip that in favor of moving on to faces uh but before we do i'll mention the criterion edition of shadows uh it comes with uh new interviews with actress uh lelia goldoni and associate producer seymour cassell who we'll talk about a bit more in faces uh, silent footage from the Cassavetes Lane Drama Workshop, uh, from which Shadows emerged. Restoration demonstration, still on poster galleries, trailer, booklets and essays. And it's also up available on the Criterion channel. Yeah, um, I went through all that. I went through... Um, Lelia's interview was great. They, they, they love him so much. Yeah. And, yeah. and Seymour, Cas- really f- yeah, Seymour Casella and Peter... Like, all of the relationships he has with his actors and his family are great. Mm. Um, so on that note, should we slide on over to Faces? Yeah. Uh, so Faces. John Cassavetes puts a disintegrating marriage under the microscope in the searing Faces. 
Shot in high contrast 16mm black and white, the film follows the futile attempts of the captain of industry Richard, played by John Marley, and his wife Maria, Lynn Carlin, to escape the anguish of their empty relationship in the arms of others. Featuring astonishing nervy performances from Marley, Carlin, and Cassavetti's regulars Gina uh, Jenna Rollins and Seymour Cassell, Faces confronts modern alienation and the battle of the sexes with a brutal honesty and compassion rarely matched in cinema. Was Gina Rollins uh, his wife? Uh, yes. Uh, yeah, okay. Yeah. They, right. they were married, I think, in the uh, mid-50s. Um, okay. She was his wife entire life, all the way up until his death. And I believe uh, when they were filming Faces, she was pregnant with, I uh, believe, who would go on to be Nick Cassavetes. Well, so, so was uh, both the girls, both the ladies were pregnant. Oh, really? I didn't know Lynn Carlin was as well. Ah. Yeah, yeah, that's that's also, I think she mentions it in the special features mm. uh, in the Faces, um, Faces DVD. So, yes, they're both pregnant and they're both smoking. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> the 60s. Oh, the 60s, yeah. Mm. <laughs> anyway, that's fine. But uh, yeah, w- I mean... Right off the bat, because, I mean, I, I've already said that I these were two Cassavetes films that I had not seen before. I fucking loved Faces. <laughs> mm. uh, certainly, um, I found Faces to be, um, I guess, the better film. I mean, there's there's nine years, the difference in release date, so... Yeah, and not just that, but, uh, you know, Cassavetes having directed other films and, you know, experienced different aspects of Hollywood leading up to this as well so it makes it its own kind of interesting beast i think it's it's more focused uh in its process it's got that same routine of of you know that fever and then somebody will say something and and it will break into you know drama and then move back into high movement camera and whatever Mm. so it's got that same style i mean his style um but everything is focused and really trying to um to generate some serious drama between just a few characters. Uh, and I think, I think uh, this kind of would bring it back to the point I was making before, before we did the special features and whatnot. Uh, when, when Richard mentions to Maria, his wife, uh, that you know, he wants a divorce, it's kind of, it's like half an hour into the film, 40 minutes into the film. It's a little while. Yeah. Oh God. Yeah. At least 40 minutes, I'd say. Yeah, and in the main, like prior to that, there are such long, drawn out moments of just kind of nothing is basically nothing is happening. Uh, yeah, certainly plot wise, um, and so you don't have anything to really grasp onto. I was I was intrigued to think, well, if I hadn't watched the documentary, um, how would have I gone watching Faces? Because yeah, y- y- there's nothing to, to for you to really grab onto thematically. Um, that's that's you know, that's any kind of strong until you get to that moment. Otherwise, you're kind of floating through, trying to figure out what's happening here. Where's he? Where's this film going? Not just that, but it's it's weird. <laughs> like in the best possible way, it's the film kind of opens with a weird meta ness of a film executive being shown a film, but like the executive is John Marley. Like, yeah, it's this weird meta textual thing, and then we just go into a scene of two guys. And a woman just kind of drunkenly talking and dancing for like half an hour. I know, for a long time. For a really fucking long time. And you're like, yeah, if we hadn't been primed or ready for it, you're just like, 
fuck this. <laughs> I, I really it's want... All, yeah. It's all technical. You know, yeah. like at that point I would have been going, okay, I have to focus on the technical aspects that the filmmaker is moving with them. It's really playful camera work. I, I could have only... That, that would have been how I would have engaged myself if I hadn't watched the doco. But having watched the doco... You know that what you're actually supposed to be latching on is to the characters and how they're interacting and what what's going on with them. Yeah, it's kind of... Uh, yeah, I mean, all these films are going to be like this, where they just set that... They kind of lull you into um, some... Like, such a natural vibe that you just begin to coast with them. Yeah. Um, it, it just plonks you into the world of these characters and you just go. <laughs> yeah. Um, but what's what I found crazy about Faces and, like, initially I was, like, a bit, you know, against it. Um, but then you d- by by the time the finale kind of rolls around, you I'm do- I was just so on board. It it's a over t- like two hour ten two hour fifteen minute long film, so not short, and it's like eight scenes. Yeah, that's <laughs> like, right. But but yeah, it's because it, they're all it's because they they spend so much time dancing and singing and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, because put you in that that situation. There's like the the opening where it is you know um, Freddie and. Uh, John Marley's character, which I can't believe I'm blanking on again, Richard, um, dancing with Jeannie, and then Richard goes home, divorce, like, you know, has a conversation with Maria, and then divorces her, and then it's like, it's just a systematic go-through of this process, and then it's like, now we're going to see what happens when Richard goes back to Jeannie, and then conversely, we're going to see what happens when Maria goes out with a bunch of her friends and meets this young guy, Chet, and it's just this systematic like i think i read somewhere that it like it takes place over 36 hours like okay. it's, it's just a small little timeline that we're privy to in these characters lives yeah uh chet who is uh dusty seymour cassell right yes uh you, you like say a, an, you say dusty but i go to bert he's oh, okay. uh okay. max fisher's father <laughs> in, uh, no, i go to dusty i'm a dusty kind of guy oh uh, let, let's put the middle ground and let's call him esteban <laughs> from <Okay>. Life Aquatic. <laughs> uh, funny. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, like he's a kind of uh, an interesting character in his own right. The the old old ish playboy that's kind of he's at the end of his days and as a as a playboy, really. Are we talking Chet here or yeah, Chet? Yeah, yeah. Um, and I, I I found it again like that that opening the opening sequence of them at the party or the the dance club. Mm goes for so long that you i couldn't help but kind of disengage somewhat yeah uh but then when when they came back to uh the house and all of the girls are you know still drinking and having a good time um with chet and it just kind of slows down and becomes momentarily very very awkward Mm. Was it? I, I think one? it's with Florence, the the older woman, who's like, "Go, Chetty, baby." <laughs> yeah, and yeah, it gets it turns into like almost like a fucking scenes from a marriage kind of situation where it's just brutal to watch. There's no one. All of a sudden, everyone realizes that they're six lonely ladies or whatever, and some old playboy that just came from a pub, a bar for, mm. for you know, and dancing and shit. It, it's but a, I loved how it's like that rack it, zoom out and you all of a sudden become hyper aware of your su- surroundings and the situation you're in. And you're like, Oh yeah. Yeah. And again, like it's this harsh cut from dancing into a bar in a bar to this really awkward moment. And 
then slowly Chet begins to put on some music, dance, and one of them kind of starts coming around to it and they start boogieing a little bit. And this drawn out sequence that lasts for six or seven minutes, just slowly taking an awkward moment and building it back into some kind of party. Um, and then it crashes I, back down into awkwardness again. It does, it does. But I, I just really respected that that whole journey. I mean, you could easily do that in 10 seconds and just do some cuts. And that would be you know, your, your typical approach um, in a Hollywood film. Mm. But John Cassavetes is like, no, we're going to... This is... The, the small moment is the moment. Yeah. Uh, it, and I think that's the approach that I think is just so unique and wonderful. And it draws it immediately back to theatre as well. It feels... And, and, you know, again, the cinema verite camera placements and everything help with that. But it feels like you are watching a stage play almost. Or it, it, it's very theatrical or... The way they're interacting and letting things just kind of drag out to that uncomfortableness. And it's like, all right, we're now in this situation. How do we then get out of it? Mm. It, it feels like an acting exercise. Yeah, that's exactly right. Like, I feel like I was watching actors very much just f- play with each other. Yeah. And that's the scene, you know, like they're, they're all just exploring what it means to act. And by doing that, they're exploring human behavior. Yeah. And it's like, we, we've had this one high peak and now we're down in this valley. How do we then get up into another peak that'll lead us to another valley? Like, And it's just ebbing and flowing like that. Yeah. And it's crazy to watch. And then, you know, overarching, there is this story, like we've said, of, of a disintegrating marriage between or what happens when a man and a woman decide to go through a divorce and seek comfort in the arms of other people. And, but that's... It... <sighs> It almost seems like that's secondary. It is just like, let's just see what happens when you let actors play. I think, yeah, the, the primary... It seems like the primary goal is to to have actors explore uh, uh, their own humanity. Mm. But then but then I think Faces... It was probably a bit more tighter than just that as well because I felt like there was... There was a message um, being um, put out by John... In that it seems like all of the males, they all treat the women like sex objects. Basically, oh. it just comes to comes down to that. Yeah. I mean, um, shit, like in that, like I think you'd mentioned earlier, the opening scene with Freddie, just like bluntly cutting in and just being like, well, how much do you charge? Like, yeah. 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 And even Richard to his wife, Maria, like there's a, a moment where they're fighting over cigarettes or whatever the, yeah. towards the, the beginning. And, uh, you know, the, the fact that she's got no sex appeal or something like that and that's all that really matters you know blah 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 blah. so i think it is it, it goes beyond just you know actors playing with with the form mm. oh yeah no that that was a very simplistic way i was putting it but okay you, you're totally right it delves into the sexual politics between men and women and what i think makes this film so interesting and unique especially coming out of 1968 is to see such a such a balanced view of you know like we said the men are predominant it's it's he's really highlighting the older generation of men because both you know richard and freddie and things they're older people they're older men and it like how their views on women aren't good and then actually having cassavetti like cassavetti switching that over and being like that's what men think about women let's actually show what women like and they're their own independent people and have go through the same struggles and the issues and like that men do so let's highlight that and examine that yeah no you're right like they, they are but both films and i'm sure 
all of the films are they're almost like kind of cultural time stamps mm. time capsules in a way uh all the men have like kind of old-fashioned views on what it means to be a man and what it means to be a woman uh, but i do appreciate that you know at the end um when marie is exposed to have had an affair with chet and and richard and her share a cigarette on the on the uh uh, stairs mm-hmm. there's there's like this kind of push and pull of i you know you, you're you're shitty you each, each one considers themselves shitty and the other person shitty but they also have this sense of yeah everyone's like that and it's okay and we can you know you're still you're still not maybe not redeemable but lovable on some level too so it's it's not just like a these characters are not just you know, clear cut. Yeah. They're, they're very much um, murky in every sense of the word. Hmm. It's, um, yeah, it's, it's, th- these films are amazing. <laughs> yeah, they, they're pretty goddamn fantastic. But they, they are interesting ones where I think we're breezing through them fairly quickly because, like we said, there's not much narratively to them. It is all just character, like, you know, character and thematic examinations. Um, but I will say, like, the, with all like faces, how they it just it builds to these crescendo. It's like these long meandering scenes that build to crescendos. To the the finale with the drug overdose is knocked me for six. Hmm. Yeah, I did not see that coming, and where that happens in the film as well is so jarring. Like more so than anything else that's happened before, it is such a shock to the system. Um, and the way it's presented is clumsy and awkward and <laughs> uncomfortable and just so amazing. <laughs> oh, fuck yeah. Apparently, um, he, like, legit put his fingers down her throat and she's, like, you know, struggling for real. Yeah, uh, that, I, I fully believed that as well. And it's, like, I, the, the moment that I, like, it's one of those... You know how periodically you watch a film and there's like a moment that you're like, oh, that's now in my brain forever. Like it's it's been <laughs> yeah. permanently. It's him running down like in his little short shorts and calling for an ambulance, and they're like, "Yep, what's what's the address? What's your phone number?" And he just hangs up because he's like, "I don't fucking know. <laughs> I, I guess I got to deal with this on my own." And then runs yeah. back upstairs. <laughs> it's so intense and amazing. Yeah, it's it. It's um. I, I think this is what inspired um the independent movement is that you can get so much bang for your buck Mm. um if if you can uh if you've got a great idea that you can do for cheap yeah well that's it and the you know by this time in 1968 there had already been a sort of groundswell of interesting american cinema like you know you've got the the Ravelson films and things starting to happen, like Easy Riders there. Uh, Graduate, I think, is the year before this, even though that was put out by Columbia, I want to say. Like, a studio released one. Mm. But it's still, like, dealing with more grounded and, you know, not puffy, light themes and issues. And it's so great that, like, I think it's so perfect us starting with these two words. Like, you have Shadows from 58 and then Faces from 68 kind of almost bookending this time and period of American independent cinema that Cassavetes lit the match for. Mm. Yeah, it is, it's remarkable, like, um, that you can, you can now be free to just go, you know what, all I need is, 
uh, is some dialogue and some good actors mm-hmm. and a shit camera. I don't need to worry about um, my locations too much. I don't need to worry about my lighting too much. I don't need to worry about my cinephotography that much. As long as uh, we can got have those good three actors, things, yeah. As then, long as then I can get it produced, I can get it out there, and people will watch it. And mm-hmm. I mean, for, for Cassavetes, all of his films um, were self-funded. Yes, his acting career f- funded them, so he's, it was, he was never really about you know seeing a return on investment or whatever. No, and that um, like again goes back to the thing from the Constant Forge, where it is just he made art for the sake of wanting to make art and wanting to create and do something, not have a job and to earn money <laughs> so, yeah yeah but faces faces made money it did faces made made a lot of money faces um, was relative kind of, to its budget yeah faces was really the one that kind of pushed his filmmaking through into the somewhat mainstream have you got the budget there uh, r- uh somewhere where did it go uh it's like roughly 275 grand for production yeah, yeah. and what was its how much money has it made since then? I don't know. Box Office Mojo kind of doesn't exist anymore. You have to have like an IMDb Pro account to access it, so which is shitty. So <laughs> I am not sure. Um, I think the other like amazing thing about Faces, I was watching some of the special features on the Criterion channel, and um, there was a great little... Pe- oh, no, I think I found this one on YouTube, actually, this uh, interview with uh, Scorsese talking about yeah, like I watched I watched that as well. <laughs> yeah, where he's like there there were two films that I that I saw that made me decide to be like because he was training to be a, he was in the seminary, he was going to be a priest, but then he quit that to become a filmmaker. And he said like the, there were the two films that like made me aware of filmmakers and made me want to make movies. And he's like the first one was Citizen Kane, and I just studied that and would watch it over and over and over again to try and figure out how he did it and what he did, like you know, how to make a movie. And he said the other one was Faces. I saw it once. <laughs> yeah, he's like I only needed to see it once, and just immediately understood that that's something you can do. He's I like, think I mean because to study it, to watch it again and again, you'd, you'd have to be going, okay, well, I'm going to take note on how you do specifically cinema verite style. Yeah, um, but but you can watch it once and go like that was amazing. Holy shit, um, you can make a movie like that. Yeah, you can do you can do you can make your own film if you wanted yeah. to. And and that's like this film is said to be like a massive influence obviously on Scorsese but then other filmmakers like Woody Allen and Robert Altman as well. Um I th- it very much so watching this you can see like the inspiration of like the withdrawn camera and like the placement and everything like you know, getting flashbacks to watching three women a couple of months ago, <laughs> like oh, yeah, yeah, cool. But it's it's no, that's good. Influential, great film. No, definitely not for everybody. <laughs> I can say that. No, I guess not. But anybody that I think it's one of those films where if you're if you're kind of invested in the Criterion Collection, it's one that you you're going to be engaged with. There's a reason they've put out a six disc box set. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like it's a, one of their biggest box sets is this collection. So, uh, well, now I've got the next three to uh, to watch. Mm. Uh, we're going to forge ahead with a woman under the influence, killing of a Chinese bookie, and opening night to round out mm-hmm. the box set. Mm-hmm. Um, but before that, do you want to hear a little bit of trivia on faces? Okay. Uh, so the film was nominated for three Academy Awards in 1969: Best Supporting Actor for Seymour Cassell. Best Supporting Actress for Lynn Carlin, and Best Screenplay Written Directly for the Screen. Uh, that was Cassavetti's only uh, non-acting Academy Award nomination in his whole career. 
Yeah. Uh, he was nominated for supporting actor for like The Dirty Dozen or something. Um, oh, but it's just popped in my head. I should say it, it's super interesting though that um, the Independent Spirit Awards, so like the amazing independent film Oscars, essentially, uh, they have an award called the John Cassavetes Award, and that is for the best film with a budget under half a million dollars. Okay. Which yeah, I, I cool. think that that's like a nice legacy for him. I think. And I know, like, it, you know, well, the, the Safdie brothers and stuff have all won that before. And, you know, it, it's a cool little thing. It's, it's nice because it makes, it makes it quite clear that he, he started that, you know, make your own film situation. Yeah. And to be honored with a name, namesake award at the Independent Film <laughs> Awards Lol. Is, is pretty great. Yeah. Uh, it was also, it also won the Passanetti Award at the 1968 Venice Film Festival, where John Marley was awarded the Volpe Cup for Best Actor. The National Society of Film Critics awarded it Best Supporting Actor for Cassell and Best Screenplay. And similar to Shadows, it was inducted into the National Film Registry in 2011. Mm. Um, uh, and Spielberg was an unpaid runner on the film. I was just about to get to that one. Uh, <laughs> I yes. get you to it. So uh, while filming a part of uh, Theatre of Stars in 1963, John Cassavetes saw, saw Steven Spielberg lurking around the set. Uh, as he had a habit of doing at the time. Apparently Spielberg, wanting to be a f- young filmmaker and things, just used to sneak onto film sets and wander and observe. Uh, Cassavetes approached Spielberg and asked him what he wanted to be. When Spielberg replied he wanted to be a director, Cassavetes allowed the young man to d- uh, direct him for a few days. Uh, he later invited Spielberg to work on this film. So Spielberg, he was, a un- as Tom said, an uncredited, uncredited production assistant. He uh, w- apparently worked for two weeks. Yep, yep. And then, and then, uh, he, then he made Jurassic Park and Schindler's List in the same year. <laughs> that he did. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but um, on that note, we'll go on to the actual Criterion edition of Faces. Uh, it comes with an alternate 18-minute opening sequence, uh, episode from French television series um, from 1968, uh, dedicated... But dedicated to director John Cassavetes, uh, Making Faces, a 2004 documentary featuring interviews with Seymour Cassell, Lynn Carlin, Jenna Rollins, and director of photography Al Rubin. Al Rubin, on lighting and shooting Faces, a new program feature commentary, uh, a new program featuring commentary by Rubin on the Blu-ray. Lighting and shooting the film, a study of technique and the equipment used on Faces by Al Rubin, which is available on the DVD, as well as the usual booklet and essays. Uh, It's out on the Criterion channel stacked editions yeah 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 i'm looking forward to the next three films yes uh i I, like i said they're they're the two of them i have seen before and they're the only ones that i'd seen so i'm I'm looking forward to revisiting them and getting your take on them so i guess uh thanks for listening everybody for the first part of our cassavetti's epic journey um as i mentioned at the beginning of the episode our patreon is launching so uh, I've included the link in this episode description, as well as I'll put it out on all the social media and stuff. Uh, it's just, it's pretty simple. It's just patreon.com slash the criteria quest. So head over there, have a look if you want. And yeah, thanks for listening as always for this week's episode. I'm Chris and I'm Tom. See you next time. <laughs>